Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Um, this episode is a special one for us because we've tried to do it uh, on two occasions so far, and uh, because of uh, scheduling issues and then some technical problems with our recording software, this is our third kick at the can, and hopefully this one uh, this one will go well. And it's uh, absolutely worth the wait, in my opinion, because uh, we have on the show Daniel Schade from Jabiamized, a German bike fit and saddle manufacturer who I am very excited to talk to. Yeah, hello, Michael. Hello, Andrew. Nice to be on the show. So with the pronunciation there, it almost sounds like you had lots of opportunity to practice over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's uh, that was the one uh, the one uh, silver lining of uh, having to do this show over a couple of episodes uh, that I did get an, uh, an opportunity to practice the pronunciation, yes. <laughs> so should I try to explain what's the idea behind that name? Or? Absolutely. To the English speaker, reading that word is, there's lots of different ways you can pronounce it. So yeah, please do, Daniel. So we started the whole bike fitting project in our company about 18 years ago, it was 2001, 2002, when we got a first request to develop a saddle pressure system. And it was a history or a phase of development together with a university here in Münster to work on a specific system. I will explain a little bit more later in the show. Okay. But um, at some point, I think it was five years later, we decided, okay, we have understood a little bit about pressure mapping, about the saddle as a contact point and we would like to introduce our technology to the market. So we went to the Eurobike first time and it was clear, okay, we need a name for that whole project, for that whole idea. And um, the company name was GBOM, which is a short phrase in German for Society of Biomechanics in Münster. Ah. And then we thought, let's put the company name GBOM and put it together with customized. So with the ending of the word customized and take it together as GBOMized. We thought it might be a nice idea, but to be honest, nobody really understood what it means <laughs> and how to pronounce it the best way. So we, we got a lot, of a lot of questions, especially in the German market. And since um, we hit the international market a few years later, we thought, okay, now it might be easier because all the English-speaking world will understand the pronunciation, but I was totally wrong. So it was even more difficult to explain to the world that GBMized is pronounced the way that it is. But so so you're in a you're in a good way. So you took a short form of a of an institute in in Munster and then added a an Eng, half of an English word in order to make the name of your company. Is that right? It, it's totally correct. Yeah, we thought it's a nice <laughs> idea, as I said. And the idea was that our products are made in a GBMized way. So made by the GBMized oh, philosophy, okay. by our methodology. This was the idea behind, but. Maybe we are not these marketing specialists to make it in the right way in terms of the name. I don't know too many engineers who are good at marketing, actually. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. In my experience, um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of experience there with uh, with coming up with clever names and clever solutions for that kind of thing. Yeah, just take a look at our podcast, where the Endurance Innovation <laughs> Podcast, it's as on the nose as you get. And at some point you realize the name is just too big and too many people know about it, so it's hard to change it to a complete different name. and 
some point we just decided, okay, we have to live with it and we have to make our joke about it. And it's a nice starter into every discussion, into every meeting to explain a little <laughs> bit about the name. And yeah, then you just have a nice flow. Yeah, it's just an icebreaker. Yeah, exactly. Great. So how did you go from this, um, you know, this, it sounds like almost like a medical device uh, pressure mapping system into uh, where you are today into a specialist in bike fitting. Can you take us through that uh, that history? Yeah, I, I tried to be quick in the first part of the history. So it all started in the late 70s when there was a group of students here at the university in Münster and they developed a first pressure mapping system for a flexible surface. Pressure mapping systems are existing since about 100 years. So when you just put oh, wow. a sensor on a rigid floor, for example, and you walk over, this is a system that it's not super difficult to develop. And that's that's long, long history. But the tricky part is to put it on a flexible surface. So they started to develop a system for mattresses, for car seats, for office chairs. And this is even more tricky because you don't have a rigid surface. So the sensor has to move and you have to find a way to make the sensor mat itself flexible. And in the late 70s, they created a special um, way to do that, a special method. And then in the 80s, they worked with a lot of car industry producers for making uh, car seats. They helped with some orthopedic, some first orthopedic questions. And in 1994, they decided as a group um, to split from the university and to create a private company. So to found the, the mother company that we are still having. And um, so since then, we're doing a lot of things in the orthopedic medical world in, in terms of pressure mapping. And this was also the starting point of GBMIs because in 2002 or 2001, it was round about that, that switch, um, we got a request from a German uh, sports medicine specialist and he was asking for having a system to measure pressure on the saddle. And at that point, we have never measure, measured pressure on the saddle before. So we focused on the foot, we focused on sitting on, on chairs, but not on the saddle itself. But because we are building up these uh, sensor mats on our own, in our own um, production or factory, we were able to just change the layout, to change the whole um, metrics of the, of the sensor mat and to make it, make it possible for a, a, a saddle. Uh, for, for a bicycle saddle and to put it on the saddle to measure the contact between the pelvis and the and the saddle. So were any of you guys cyclists or triathletes or was it the reason to go to, to doing this on bike saddles because of this uh, external request? Yeah, funny story. So there was no real um, cycling specialist in the company when we got that request. So I was part of that first group and to be honest, I started my, my road cycling career two years later because I was so affected <laughs> by this by this request. And we digged deeper and deeper that I decided at some point, okay, I just don't want to measure road cyclists all day. I want to be a road cyclist as well. So I, I got excited and uh, now I've got about eight bikes at home and doing a lot of different <laughs> disciplines. So you, you, you nice. know how this virus can move. Um, oh yes, but yeah, it was really this funny story. We we came to that request really as uh, as an external party without any experience in in cycling and bike fitting, and just from our scientific perspective, and tried to put the things we have learned in other industries into that cycling project. So, from an innovation standpoint, I find this pretty interesting because it seems to happen all the time where there's this idea or this technology that exists in one sphere 
and maybe a lack of experience or lack of knowledge of a problem. And then you get that problem injected with this other technology. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, we've got this perfect solution for it. Um, now, not to say it was perfect right from the get-go. I'm sure there was a lot of uh, development time in the sensors, but it's, it's really interesting how this seems to play out just over and over again in a whole bunch of different areas. Yeah, and I think especially the way from the medical world to the sports world is something that I've realized quite often. So there are a lot of solutions in the medical industry that you can easily use or that you find a very good good reason to use in a, in a sports application. And in, me, in the medical world, especially here in Germany, there's also a lot of innovation, a lot of money coming from the government. So there is a lot of uh, interest in bringing products forward and bringing research and innovation forward. And I think it's always nice when you find some other opportunities to use your technology, not just in the focus you, you might have when you start developing it, but also in, in different other fields. So the the um, sensor technology itself, uh, I had no idea that it was so old, that it was um, developed back in the 70s and 80s. So what kind of changes, like what's the, the core mechanism that you use to actually measure once you get down to the, the very technical side of things? That's that's something I'm quite interested in in learning a bit more about, as long as it's not proprietary. Yeah, there are some things that I that I can talk about. And one thing that is important and that's part of our philosophy is to use a single sensor approach. So we have, when you think about our saddle sensor mat, it's like a flexible sensor mat, like a foam material, which fits onto a, onto a bike saddle. And there are a lot of single sensors and they are connected in a special matrix. And this matrix, how to connect one sensor to the other, this was the development from, from our company or from the work with the university in the late 70s. Because the sensor itself, it's not flexible, but the material between the sensors, like the wires and this foam material, this makes the whole sensor mat flexible. Especially when you think about uh, saddle designs nowadays, you need a flexible mat. You have a lot of saddles mm -hmm. with a channel, you have saddles with cutouts, you have larger cutouts, wider cutouts, longer, shorter, whatever, and so many different designs. When you think about having a rigid mat, it wouldn't be possible to really get an accurate data and accurate pressure plot on, on that saddle to another saddle. So it's really important that the sensor mat is flexible. And this is one thing that's really based on the previous work in the medical industry that helped us to make the product as accurate as it is now. I guess by the very act of measuring it, you could potentially change it if you don't have the right type of sensor. So I completely see how that's that's a huge part or a huge priority that you have. Yeah, that was one reason why it took more than five years before we went to the market, because it was really a, a phase of testing out different sensors, different kind of of layouts and rechange and uh, delete some of your ideas, start with a new idea. And it's also about the the data transfer. So it was quite clear when we start working with cyclists, we don't want to be just close to the lab. We also want to go outside and measure on the road. Uh, I've written my master thesis about uh, comparing custom saddles to standard saddles, but measuring outside on a specific uh, road, which was about 500 meter long and where we had a specific distance to measure exactly. And of course, when you work with road cyclists, you want to measure where it happens, where your discomfort might occur. And this is uh, more on, on the road than on the stationary trainer. Uh, lucky us, we found a good routine that you can use the system in the lab nowadays as well. So it's not it's not um, essential to go outside, but it's possible. If you want to go outside because you want to do measurements on the road, you can do. 
but the data we produce in a normal bike fitting studio is accurate enough to use it for the analysis and for making optimizations and, and, and adjustments. That's a really good point because as anyone who's written both outside and inside, you you know you get the appreciation for the fact that it feels quite different. You know that there are all sorts of both perception differences as well as as real you know biomechanical differences. So it's interesting to hear that your system is uh, sensitive enough that you can or calibrated to to an extent that you can make um, make generalizations indoors that are relevant to outdoors. Yeah, at the end, it's all about the right protocol. So when you um, use, um, and, and this is not just depending on our system, it's for every technology you use in a bike fit studio, if you have the right protocol, and if you test as realistic as possible, you also get more accurate, high quality data that you can analyze because it's closer to the real world. I always say, if you if you test, um, a, a weekend warrior and he just wants to ride uh, 90 minutes pain-free on his road bike with a very comfortable position, it's not so necessary to put him five minutes into 500 watts because it's not realistic that he will ride that outside. But on the other hand, if you work with a sprinter, for example, it, it just doesn't make sense if you've got some problems, especially when he accelerates, that you just test him with 100 watts, for example. So um, we always try to find protocols, discipline-specific protocols that fit to the to the needs of the rider, and then the quality of the data is just better for analysis. So, is it this search for this optimal protocol? Is that how you guys went from being a pressure mapping company that started doing work on saddles to uh, a full-on bike fitting company? Yeah, I think it was it was one of that parts. So when we started. And, and when you focus on the saddle alone, so you test maybe two different saddles with one rider, you look at your pressure plot and you see there are differences. Then you can say, okay, the difference is based on the model because I switched from model A to model B. But you can also think, okay, what happens when I change the seat height now? What does it affect the saddle? What happens when I change the saddle for raft position? So you ask more questions about the saddle position. This was quite fast when you start using this technology. And then you start thinking about the bike position or the, the position of the rider on the bike as a triangle of different contact points. So what happens when I raise up the handlebar? Does it affect the pelvis on the saddle? What happens when I change the cleat position? And then you, you get this interaction and you get this full picture of somebody on the bike and the understanding that every contact points interacts with the other contact points. So I think this was the other side that really drove us going forward and being a, a, a full bike fitting supplier because yeah, the saddle alone doesn't, doesn't help you to make a complete fit. But I think this is a difference to other bike fit uh, companies on the market. We really started with uh, saddle. So we were focused on the saddle and we also started with analyzing contact points. So this was, this is our DNA to look at contact points and to try to understand how the rider interacts with these contact points. That makes a lot of sense to me as a, as a bike fitter. So what's your order of, uh, you know, order of operations, if you can talk a little bit about your process, again, if it's not proprietary. Um, so just for our listeners, the three contact points, and this is fairly obvious i think to most but uh it's the the pedal cleat interface the saddle and then the handlebar as uh, as daniel mentioned so in terms of your process do you i imagine you prefer to start with one and work your way through it how do you look at that yeah so we have a we have a routine starting with 
an interview in every fit session to understand more about the rider. So about the needs of the rider, about the history of discomfort, of goals. So, so to get a profile. And then we go through a battery of tests. We call that assessment or, or pre-fit tests. I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard about that mm -hmm. because it's pretty common in, in bike fitting that you also get an understanding about the flexibility level of a rider, about the stability level, about some weak links that you might find in the body. And then we start a dynamic assessment. And we, first of all, run a complete baseline. This is one of our protocol specifics. For example, with a triathlete, I always run a longer baseline than normal. So maybe about 10 minutes because I want to see how the triathlete moves in the arrow position in, in 10 minutes. So I normally record two or three times over that period after three minutes, after six minutes, and then after nine or 10 minutes. And it gives you a first idea if if somebody tries to compensate for some things that are not optimal in the position, if there might be a shift of the pelvis forward or compensation with your left knee or whatever. So a lot of different opportunities, but we figured out that when we just analyze a triad lead for two minutes, we don't get this information, how stable and how comfortable the position is. In 10 minutes, we get a better picture. And then we normally start from the pedals, going through the saddle and then to the handlebar. Let me interrupt you for a quick question. Um, when you say you're recording, what exactly are you recording? So we imagine you're recording pressure data from the saddle. Any other pressure maps and any video, any like kinematics, any of that stuff? Yeah, all of that stuff. <laughs> so, so yeah, we, we have our own kinematic system and we have our own kinetic system. So we start in our baseline. When we run a full baseline with a triathlete, we measure the pressure distribution in both shoes. So left and right separated. Oh, okay. How, the, the, how both feet are interacting with the shoe and with the pedal. Then we measure pressure distribution on the saddle and on both arm pads. We also have a system oh, wow. to, okay. to see how the pressure is distributed between left arm and right arm and also how stable the shoulders are because we see that in our in our pressure plot. And then we have got two video cameras uh, in high speed to measure lateral and frontal. And we have a rotating platform if it's necessary to also measure on the other side of the body and to measure the back, then we can do that. And this is the, the data we record. And uh, over the last years, last two years, we also added some IMU sensors. So to get an understanding how some parts of the body move when, when somebody's pedaling. What is an IMU sensor? I'm not familiar with the term. Um, the, the term means inertial measuring unit. Ah, okay. And it's basically an accelerometer yes. and a gyroscope. So it's like having a smartphone on your pelvis or on your torso, and it measures movements in left and right direction, rotational movement, and also gives you an angle of the pelvis, for example. So like the Leomo product. Exactly the Leomo product. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, good, yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if you're familiar with that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, they're they're a very interesting company too. And um, yeah, this is for us a nice product because it helps us to uh, make the transfer from the lab to the real world because we can analyze in the lab, we create some reference numbers and then we go out and let the rider ride for maybe two hours in a specific protocol. And then we comp compare the road data with our lab data ah. and see if we can find any hints for a compensation movement. Interesting. And one parameter that's really helpful is for example, the pelvic angle. Um, this shows you the absolute number where the pelvis is in relation to the to the ground. And let's assume you have a triad lead and you start in an arrow position with 30 degrees 
and maybe uh, every 10 minutes he goes one degree more up. Ah. So that would mean for me, okay, the pelvis is moving posterior mm -hmm. and there might be a reason for that. Maybe because his hip angle is too closed and he compensates to, by bringing the pelvis more posterior to open up the hip angle a little bit and to yeah, get rid of that close, uh, closing of the hip angle. So it, it shows me, okay, what happens when we try with a shorter crank, for example, or try with a different seat height. So right. yeah, it's a pretty neat tool. Very cool. Okay. So we're, we're, uh, listeners, we're getting a little bit into the weed of uh, of bike fitting here, we, but I, uh, you know, Andrew was asking questions about how sensors work specifically. So I'm now, it's my turn to ask questions about how bike fitting works specifically. So you'll, <laughs> you'll have to bear with us. Let me know if it's getting too nerdy and then I try to go back to the basics. No, I will never let you, I will never say that to you, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've established a pretty good nerdy baseline. So <laughs> there's there's no area we're afraid of going into, I think. So we, we have started talking about the uh, how to move on from contact point to contact point. Yes. And as I said, we start with the foot pedal interface. We want to make sure that shoe decision, for example, is done in the right way. It's pretty often a topic in our lab here in Germany that we find out that the shoe, that the last of the shoe uh, doesn't fit so well to the foot of the rider. And then we want to figure that out in the beginning. It's uh, For me, it's the worst case if I do it three or four hours fit. And in the last 15 minutes, I realize, okay, this is the wrong shoe because basically I can start from scratch. So this is something we want to make sure in the beginning that this is correct. Also that the cleat position is correct because when you change something in the longitudinal axis of the cleats, it always influences your seat height. So yes. make sure the cleats are correct. And then we go up to the saddle. Saddle decision, of course, um, it's a, if it's the right model or maybe the wrong model, if the seat height is correct. And um, <clears throat> it's always a combination analyzing our kinematic data, so specific body angles, and putting that into, uh, into a full picture with our pressure data. I always feel that our pressure data gives me the fine-tuning picture and the, the angles gives me more the, the rough picture. If somebody is in the ballpark, with a position or if if it's completely out of out of order right and you're also looking at movement as as people are are pedaling like you know uh, uh, pelvic rock or, or shoulder rock that kind of stuff as well right yeah sure so um it's it's nice that the leomo system is very aligned to our pressure data so we have a parameter in in pressure mapping that we call cop which means center of pressure okay and it's a pattern that shows you how the pelvis on the saddle for example moves when the rider pedals. So when the pedal goes down, you normally bring the center of pressure to that side. And at the end of the pushing phase, when you start to pull, then the center of pressure moves more to the middle of the saddle and then back to the other side when the other, uh, when the other leg goes down. And this pattern tells you a lot of stories if the pelvis is moving in a free way, both sides in the, in the same way, or if there's any kind of blocking, for example, on one side, or if there's any kind of rotation or rocking. And this pattern that I see uh, is, is pretty much correlated with pelvis rock and pelvis rotation you see in the Leomo numbers. So it's possible to objectify the pattern of the COP by using both systems. So I recently had a bike fit done using your system. And this is something that I found really interesting to take a look at was where you capture this recording and you get to watch it after the fact and see you know, you, you get to see how you're moving and how things are shifting. 
but it also gives you that ability to think back to the ride you did, you know, a minute or two ago, um, and then understand, oh, this is what it feels like when I'm shifting to the side. And, and that's something that you can actually use as information to either help improve your pedal stroke or just understand what's actually going on with your biomechanics. But very interesting way of looking at it and, and being able as an athlete to see what's happening is, I think, one of the most important things. Yep, I totally agree. So you can visualize what you normally what's hard to describe and what you normally can't see as a bike fitter because what happens in the interaction between contact point and, and the human body, this is really hard to see from the side. So the eye is not fast enough. We're measuring with 200 hertz, so it's a pretty fast measure measurement. And you see a lot of data that you wouldn't see with your eye. And um, I, I think it's helpful for the fitter to get an additional information, but it's also very helpful for the rider because it's a very transparent process. Normally, every rider can follow what we're doing when we do an adjustment and you compare seat height one to seat height two, and then you see, okay, we've got 25% less maximum pressure and you see red, the red color, which means high pressure. This is gone. This is also easy for a rider to understand that this is a better picture now than it was before. So it makes the whole process of bike fitting way more transparent. Yeah, that's amazing because, you know, as a, as a fitter using very kind of, uh, basic technologies in, in my fitting past where it was basically you, you use a goniometer to measure angles and then you obviously not dynamic angles. You try to capture them as dynamic in a static state, which is always kind of a, a dodgy proposition, but also in, um, in getting the, you're always relying on the subjective feedback of the athlete. You know, it's almost like, does this feel better? Or does this feel better? And that's really, that's as accurate as you used to be able to get without this technology. So it's really amazing to see how far the science of bike fit has advanced in the last, uh, last handful of years. And it's a good point that you mentioned. So we still believe in subjective feedback. So I always ask my, my, my clients how they feel. Mm, okay. But it also helps me to understand if this rider gives a very sensitive feedback or if he's not so sensitive in his own way to describe things. And sometimes you have people, they are amazing. They can tell you this is one millimeter of seat height difference. I feel that. And, and now I would say it's maybe 10% more pressure on that specific spot. And you look on the monitor and it's exactly not 10% more pressure. But you, you also have this opposite that somebody tells you, yeah, I've got discomfort on the saddle. And you ask, yeah, where can you specify? And they say, no, it's all over the saddle. So the, this is not the feedback that's super helpful when you want to compare details from one detail to the other. So it also helps this whole communication piece to get an understanding of your client. If you trust the subjective feedback for such a short time, for maybe five minutes or 10 minutes of riding on a trainer, yep. or if you say, oh, I believe a little bit more in the data in this fit, because I understand that my client is not able to give me that, that uh, detailed uh, feedback. Huh, interesting. But we wouldn't we wouldn't exclude any kind of communication. So I think I think it's still important that bike fitting doesn't mean uh, a nerd sits behind the monitor yeah. and speaks just with the monitor about numbers. That it's a communication between two persons, and that you try to achieve a new position together. So rider plus bike fitter. Yeah, and that makes that, that really speaks to me because that was always my skepticism with um, you know the like the guru fit system or the uh, you know specialized has one, Shimano has one, everyone has one, and it always whenever I've uh, encountered these systems, it's oh the impression that I was left with is that the bike fitter tries to put you in a certain certain you know 
position that's prescribed by the uh, by the fit system rather than you know really interacting with you in a in a more customized way. So this is the prescribed position. This is the position based on your flexibility and your your physical size. This is the position that we want to get you in. And this is where most, let's say, triathletes fit like this. So this is where we're going to put you. And that was always, that always left me a little bit uh, wanting. And uh, it's good to hear that you you still take, despite all of the uh, the really accurate data that you receive, that you still take the rider feedback into account too. I think the whole fit industry changes a little bit when you look over the last years. Um, I would say when I started doing my fits, the whole dynamic bike fitting was driven by body angles. So as you as you say, there were a prescription of body angles, a knee angle was defined, a shoulder angle was defined, and so on. And you you normally have a range, and you had just your your bike fitter task is try to bring your rider into the range of prescribed uh, angles. And I see that there is a shift more to contact point analysis driven bike fittings nowadays and when you concentrate more on the contact points you're getting way more individual so um, for us sometimes we see that two millimeter of seat height doesn't change anything in terms of knee angle or ankling or whatever but it makes 10 to 20 percent difference in pressure mapping on the saddle and so so this is what i mean when i speak about fine tuning it's really this contact to the saddle um, doesn't change doesn't necessarily a small change uh, change your your pedaling mechanics but can change your contact to to a specific material and when you uh, focus in your bike fittings on contact points you create a way more individual process and less driven by numbers given by by the the fit school or yeah by the industry so that's a little bit my experience i've done over the years that now more and more bike fitters are concentrating and focusing on contact points and less on the range of body angles. So with this becoming more of a focus now, do you see any future where the technology is downsized further and integrated directly into a saddle so that you can train and race with it and maybe get dynamic feedback on how, if you're fatiguing, how your position's changing and how it might be more efficient? Or um, or is that just going to be too much information for the athlete to try and comprehend at the time? Uh, this would definitely be my next step. So in an ideal world of a scientific-driven <laughs> bike fitter, it, to- it totally makes sense to to bring more and more technology to the rider that he can ride for a longer time and that you get answers on how he compensates, when does he start to get fatigued, if he gets fatigued, how does he compensate for fatiguing? So there are a lot of questions that you can just answer when you have the time and when you measure over time. With the Leomo system, we already see that there are possibilities and we also use our own saddle pressure device on the road to, to follow a rider in a, in a training ride, for example, and to measure specific parts of the ride. Um, we have a specific software to measure the stability on the saddle where we concentrate how the COP as a parameter, so the center of pressure, uh, moves over time. So, for example, if you measure five minutes and you work with a triad lead, you want to know how often this triad lead shifts. So, how often does he leave the contact to the saddle? Does he reposition himself with the pelvis on the saddle? And these are objectives uh, um, and, and, and numbers that we would like to, to have. And then we can think about, okay, how can we optimize it? How we can increase stability of, of the rider? And therefore, it's necessary to leave the lab and to go outside. We already do that, but it's still 
there are just a few projects because it, it's uh, the effort is quite high. So you have to be the rider, the technology. Somebody has to ride the uh, drive the car. So you have to sit in the car and use your your measuring laptop to cover all of that. But I think it's just a question of time when you transfer that method we do at the moment to have something that records uh, with the rider alone without having us. And then we analyze the data afterwards. And I guess that's similar to the adoption of any other technology as well, where heart rate monitors started out kind of clunky and not really that accurate. And then power meters went through the same kind of adoption where they were extremely expensive and they had uh, limited abilities. And now we have both of them providing lots of additional information that we never really anticipated, like heart rate variability, or when you look at uh, the power breakdown throughout the, the pedal stroke. So... I, I see this as kind of a logical next step to understand what's actually happening because so many more people are realizing that, yeah, you can put out a certain amount of power, but can you actually do it comfortably, especially for a long race like a, an Ironman athlete has to go through? So I, le I see a lot of chances with that, but I also see a lot of limitations. And this is <clears throat> mainly based on the rider it's himself. So when you think about there's a power meter, there might be two Leomo sensors, there might be a pressure system, there's a lot of information coming to the display in front. And I'm not sure how many numbers you really can, can, can use over a training ride. Yep. So for example, when I use the Leomo device for coaching purposes, I reduce it to maximum one or two numbers. So I tell my athlete, concentrate on a pelvic angle, X, Y, Z, or concentrate on um, your, your, your movement or your pedaling movement. So the DSS is maybe lower than 10 or whatever. So if you, if you tell them, okay, here are nine different values <laughs> and try to be, bring nine different values in nine different ranges, it's just too much. It's too much for a training ride. They still have to concentrate on, on their effort, maybe on the traffic and, and all of that stuff. And this is also a limitation. So we have to be careful uh, that we don't... Um, expect too much from the athlete because at some point maybe less is more to really get information that you can use i totally agree with that i think that yeah it, you also have to consider cognitive load right when you're when you're having to uh, work hard physically and there's a, a big you know uh, motor cortex demand on that activity obviously to push hard uh, or to do really long rides to keep keep yourself interested and then you're adding additional well, cognitive demand on and interpreting and analyzing data to you know to see what how you can improve your ride that is uh, that is extra work for your brain and um, I, t I totally take your point Daniel that that oftentimes that is uh, a negative rather than a positive so for every single outdoor project we do and it's it doesn't matter if it's a world tour rider or if it's an age grouper we decide where to place the, t the display and sometimes we decide we put it on the handlebar because there is one number to concentrate on but there are also other projects where we decide to hide the display and maybe to mount it behind the seat post or to put it just in the in the jersey bag and to say don't look at the numbers we want to analyze that afterwards but we don't want to distract you just ride your normal ride don't concentrate on anything we just want to see what happens naturally huh I think there's also possibly the um, the chance of some kind of maybe not confirmation bias, but just seeing the data and and changing how you would normally ride just based on getting that feedback. And having the feedback is important, but um, but it might skew the baseline results that you're trying to get as well. Yeah, exactly. It's a good point. So in our lab, we normally hide the monitor, especially when we do the baseline. So our riders can't see what happens on the screen. 
because it's a typical human behavior when you see a red spot on the left side of your saddle you try to get rid of that and then you move a little bit more and shift to the right side but we don't want to see that we want to see how you uh, pedal in an in a natural way so we normally look at the data afterwards when all the baseline measurements are done i remember when i had my cycling studio and we had we were running compu chainers that had the spin scan analysis that would tell you how smooth quote unquote your pedal stroke was and then whenever we i i turned it off eventually because people would fixate on their like like their left right balance and their you know their uh, the smooth they were trying to make power application as smooth as possible to the point where it was very detrimental to their pedal stroke because your pedal stroke isn't naturally you can't get 100% equal power distribution through a pedal stroke that's not how bodies work so people were trying to drive that number up as high as possible thinking that that was best even if you told them that that was not the objective they would still continue to do it it was uh, it was an interesting experiment to the point where like i said i eventually disabled that feature on the displays because i didn't want people looking at it yeah good point yeah and you have to to make sure when you um, show some data and you explain how the data looks like in the next run, there might be an influence coming from that explanation. Yes, yes. So for example, when we do an error test in, in the velodrome, the coaching aspect where we really work on giving some advices, what to do with the body, how to maybe put the shoulders, how to go into a shrug position or whatever, we do that at the end of the day because we know when we do that in the beginning, there's a high risk that all the runs afterwards you can just ignore because it's a mixture between different material and maybe part of the coaching aspect. So I think it's, 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 it's important for fitters to understand every time when there's a coaching aspect inside, it might influence the result of your data. Mm -hmm. That's true. It's like the uncertainty principle. So this uh, this actually brings up an interesting point and something I'd kind of forgotten to mention until now. But my actual first experience with your system was with uh, Cycling Canada when they were testing at the Milton Velodrome. So they had a combination of the um, the pressure mapping sensor as well as their timing data, which is the Alpha Mantis system used to determine your aerodynamics. So they were actually able to correlate having different saddle pressure maps with having more aerodynamic positions, which I think once you start to combine some of these sensor inputs and the, the data you're getting, that really builds on the power. It's not even like, you know, the the sum of the parts is greater, or was it the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, whatever that saying is. Once you start to combine different types of data, um, you're really improving the rider as a whole much more than just the pressure mapping like yes the comfort is very important but when you start to be able to build in the aerodynamics too i think that's a very interesting application and um, the method you're mentioning this is a development we have done about five years ago where we tried to combine our stability measurements with the aerodynamics data and we we still run that protocol also with the alpha mantis system here in germany when we do our aero tests or all over europe and um Putting that together with uh, position stability and comfort really um, changes the way to make aerodynamic decisions. And uh, this, is, this is super interesting from my perspective because it also depends on the rider you are testing. For example, when you have a track sprinter, then we speak about a very short amount of time. So you can concentrate more on aero, maybe less on comfort. But if you speak with a long distance triad lead and there is a bike split of maybe four and a half, maybe five, maybe six hours, it's completely different. And you have to concentrate more on, on comfort, on stability, and also on sustainability to make sure 
that the position he tries to hold, that he can hold that for, for hours. And uh, it's quite often that in our arrow protocol, we do not go for the most uh, aerodynamic position, but we do maybe the second best or third best because it's a drastic difference in terms of stability and comfort. That makes perfect sense because at the end of the day, you're looking for the fastest possible time. And uh, Andrew and I have probably beat this issue to death. But if you <laughs> if you can't stay in arrow and you have to sit up because you're uncomfortable, then it doesn't matter how good your aerodynamic position is, right? It's, exactly. When you sit up, you're adding like 50% drag. I think this is the worst case we we all can achieve if somebody has to has to go into the base bar maybe after three hours or, or whatever and stays for yeah. 10 minutes in the base bar. You don't have to care about the last percentage in aerodynamics if you can't make sure that you are 95% of your bike split in your aero position and that you don't need the base bar for, for your bike split. Totally agree. I want to get back to uh, your the bike fit a little bit and uh, the way that you guys ended up as uh, as bike fitters at, uh, was is interesting because you came from the medical industry and perhaps you were a little bit outside the industry first when you started. And uh, bike fitting historically has been a very kind of a dogmatic practice. You know, these there were certain rules that you had to follow, like you said, like the body angles. And so I'd like to ask you if, if throughout the course of your many analyses of, uh, of triathletes specifically, if you found things that were uh, that were traditional best practices that turn out to be not very useful um, and then also talk about some of the newer um, you know some of the newer position choices that you see a lot of athletes taking specifically high hands uh, and the tilts of the and the extensions and uh, the movement to shorter cranks so there's a few questions in there so you know pick and choose and talk about whichever ones you like so um let me think what's the best way to start. This is quite a big field. <laughs> In terms of triathlon fitting, I see a lot of times that um, that, that we work with, with athletes and we, first of all, have a big play on the seat height. Seat height is still a topic. I, I think... In 2020, everybody should say it's so easy to find the right seat height. I completely would say the opposite, that it's still a very difficult topic that we maybe open it in every single fit session to find the right seat height. And one reason could be that based on the history of bike fitting, there was this knee angle range uh, of or your, your range of leg extension to define, okay, it should be between that angle and that angle. If you're in there, that's fine. Yep. And we see that it still has a lot of, lot of uh, compensation um, consequences if the seat height is not correct. And sort of not correct could be that it's three millimeter or five millimeter out of our definition of, of optimal. And it's quite often that you see that the compensation starts around the saddle. For example, that your pelvis moves naturally a little bit more forward, maybe five millimeter, maybe 10 millimeter, because you're sitting too high and you want to reduce the stress on your, uh, on your hamstrings, for example, and you just reduce the knee angle by going a little bit more forward huh. or by raising up the heel a little bit and uh, reducing the, st the stress around your Achilles or around your hamstrings. Right. So it's still um, something that we think it's an important factor of tri-positioning to um, find the right seat height and also in conjunction with the right um, saddle because finding the right saddle is a very specific topic for, for tri-athletes. I think uh, this could, could fill <laughs> easily another podcast. <laughs> To summarize that, I think in previous years, um, riders sat higher than, than they sit 
nowadays. Oh, interesting. Okay. I would say seat height, uh, um, uh, some reduction in seat height is, is something we see quite significantly here in, in our labs. And the other one is um, we still have riders coming in with quite an aggressive drop. So this old dogma, uh, uh, how low can you go? And, uh, <laughs> lower is, is better. <laughs> lower is better and lower is definitely more aerodynamic. Might work for the bike itself, but definitely in my experience doesn't work for the whole system, bike and body. Yes. And uh, we have seen over the last years that we can realize quite some nice aero gains by adding some comfort to the front end. So, for example, by raising up the cockpit, by reducing that drop, by re releasing the shoulders, by uh, reducing tension and stress around the shoulders and upper arms. And this often helps um, the head to go a little bit lower and to, to achieve a lower head position. So I would say comfort is another thing. Adding comfort can really help to be not just more comfortable, obviously, but also more aerodynamic. And this is another uh, thing I see which can be also realized by an angle, not not um, directly, or I wouldn't say it's it's always the extreme praying mantis position, but um, with with an angle of your um, of your arms, it can be helpful to add some comfort to the cockpit. Yeah, I usually go by the well. I don't know if I want to call it a fact, but by the realization that comfortable is usually fast. Um, so even if it's not as fast on the bike, you might be faster on the run if you're a triathlete. So just having that extra comfort um, is crucial. So if you can also get aerodynamics out of that, that's, I mean, there's nothing to lose there. And this is a nice aspect of our aero protocol because we always have both information. And when we run two stations in the velodrome, then we have got uh, one one of my um, fitting colleagues. He's normally running the aero station from Alpha Mantis, and I'm running the stability station. And then it's you can think about quite a quite a fight between both of us. So we we, we do the <laughs> run, then we have got both numbers, and then he say, okay, uh, I've got an aero gain, and I say, okay, but I have got a big loss in stability, and then we have to weigh and have to decide, okay, does it make sense to go that way? Is the aero gain really so? significant that we would accept uh, a loss in instability or would we go the other way and say oh no the the arrow gain it may be just one percent or two percent let's go back because the stability win in the other position is way bigger so for us it's easier to make that decision because we have the objective numbers to speak about comfort and to speak about aerodynamics got it and for those of us who don't have necessarily access to all of that uh that technology um you would say that comfort would be a more of a design or more of a guiding factor than than aerodynamics especially for long course triathletes yeah i would definitely say that so especially when 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 the athlete is not um it's not sure if he can realize the arrow position all over the time then it's definitely a biomechanics and the comfort yes. topic. Also working with a fitter, they, they should try to, to find more comfort in that position because that creates sustainability. And I'm totally with Andrew. This is super important for the run because we were just talking about the bike split here, but it's important that, they, that you also save some energy and that you don't have a very cost-intensive position um, to save, to save your, your uh, own energy for the run. Uh, this is one point. And um, the other point is if your position is already sustainable and you can hold it for, um, for the whole bike split, I think it's more worth to think about your, your posture 
and how to move your body in a specific position to do some arrow gains rather than to try to to be more aggressive so i think this uh concentrating on comfort and uh, on more stability on both contact points so arm pads and saddle is a, is a crucial aspect for a tri position I want to pick out something that you said a little bit earlier, which I think is worth repeating and, and for our listeners to really appreciate. And that is that if you're if you're more comfortable, for instance, with a with a higher stack in the front end, it is easier to achieve a lower head position. And this is something that Andrew and I have talked about in our aerodynamics breakdown episode and in, in past episodes as well. That head position is incredibly important to aerodynamics. So if what um, if we take that a more comfortable position allows you to lower your head potentially that could have very significant aerodynamic benefits as well as comfort benefits so um, i think that's worth re restating yeah so normally if you're riding more aggressive so you have a, a larger drop then you you normally experience more tension around the upper arm for example and around the shoulder area yeah and this tension is um, really limits the head to go lower and when you try to do that, you always see see that they that these riders they have a, a quite a significant limitation on bringing the head down. Even when you do a pretest before and you see that the limitation of of the the neck flexibility is, is not given, but it's given based on the position because they have to to push in the arm pads to compensate for that low front end position, and this tension really limits them. And if you give them a little bit of, of relief that, that the arms go a little bit higher, that there is less stress and we can measure that as less pressure on the armpits as well, then it's, it's normally easier because there is a release around the, the shoulder part, around the neck. And then you see, okay, the head can go lower, can go lower, and they still have the vision. Of course, then the helmet question comes into the game. Right. This is always seen as a, as a system from my side. So helmet plus uh, head uh, posture. But yeah, and this is not a general rule for everybody, but we see it that in more cases, comfort helps to achieve a lower head position rather than just going lower with the whole front end. That makes a ton of sense. And you're right about it being a system. And this is the way I look at so many things. It used to be just discrete problems where people would approach it saying, using aerodynamics as an example, oh, this is the best helmet, you need this helmet, versus this helmet integrates with your body position um, and provides good aerodynamics for the rest of your body as opposed to just sacrificing everything else for the sake of the helmet. And I know it's the same with bike fit, where it's the full chain that you're looking at and trying to optimize what the best overall performance is. But uh, unfortunately, that just makes it really difficult for, <laughs> for people like yourself, but also interesting. Yeah, and Michael brought up the topic crank lengths, and I think this is this is also a very interesting. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> I was going to say I want one more one more question about bike fitting, and uh, and then I want to talk about saddles. But yes, please go ahead with crank lengths. Yeah, so uh, crank lengths is for me also a super interesting topic, and we work with quite a few pro teams, um, uh, world tour teams, and uh, I remember one one um, discussion with a with a manager from one of these world tour teams end of last winter where he said okay it's really difficult to make all these arrow tests with you because we have a forecast of cranks and you always come with your arrow tests and now we we don't have any short cranks in stock <laughs> so this is this is not just a thing we see with triathletes we also see that in with time trial list that we can definitely measure more benefits with a shorter crank rather than a longer a longer crank and the reason is 
And we concentrate in our baseline to find possible compensation movements um, of the body that can be linked to the crank lengths. And one possible compensation could be the position of your pelvis. If we see that over time the pelvis moves more and more posterior, that's a sign for us that uh, the rider tries to achieve a, a larger hip angle because this hip angle that he's riding might be too tight. The problem is when the pelvis is posterior rotated, it's quite e uh, quite hard to go into your arrow position and to hold uh, that position because sure. um, you you basically create a rounded lumbar spine, which also is negative for your for your deep uh, back muscles. So um, there is a negative effect to aerodynamics as well if your pelvis goes posterior. It could also be that the saddle is is wrong in terms of discomfort. But we have some, some more compensation movements. The knee can move out. You can move a little bit more on the saddle. If you push the right side down, that you move to the left side. All these um, small things are hints for us that something's going on with the crank length. And then we always try to explain it's worse to give it a try with a shorter one and to see how the results might show a difference or even not. And in, in most of the cases, we see that these compensation movements are, are going uh, are less or even are, are not there anymore. And this is always a typical sign for us. If we shorten the crank, we normally win uh, comfort and stability um, thing around the saddle. And then we transfer that with time trial list into an aerodynamic win. So we work on stability first. And then we say, okay, now we can think about the spacer and going maybe five millimeter lower. But because we, we first of all, have done something positive for your hip angle and for your contact to the saddle. Any disadvantages to going to a shorter crank in your opinion, Daniel? For triathletes, uh, I don't see anything. There is still a discussion what happens when you have a sprinter in, on the track ah. and you start with the initial force because there is a difference in, 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 in your lever. Yes. Um, but when we speak about constant, um, constant movements like um, the, the time trial list or like the, the triathlete, I see way more benefits uh, biomechanical-wise then I see negative aspects. I sometimes see that there is no effect, that we can't measure any difference. And this might be because you're so adapted to the compensation that you don't stop that compensation just by having a different option now. So sometimes it takes a while until you get adapted to that. But this is the only thing. And then it's, it's maybe just a decision. Do you want to take the time or when you're just before a big race, it might be not the right point of time to do that switch and maybe to shift it better to the off-season or to a later later date in the in the season. But I cannot mention any any obvious uh, negative aspect that I see with shorter cranks. That's some good confirmation bias for me. Yes. <laughs> I'm personally a big fan of them as well. Yeah, I've I've been riding a 165 crank crank for the last uh two or three years and i haven't seen any negative impacts from it like my ftp has gone up in that time um, i've been more comfortable more aerodynamic so really i can't see why it would be a bad choice for most people i agree and it's really fairly independent of, of height andrew and i are both uh around six feet um or 182 183 centimeters um and so we would be on the taller side of the triathlete population and i also ride a 165 and i have had one for three years on my bike as well so one of my colleagues did an interesting study to compare pelvis stability 
um, to different crank lengths. And what he found out is that the risk of getting more instable on the saddle and also create higher discomfort on the saddle is bigger with a longer one than with a shorter one. And I think this is a, a complete different topic to that. Um, all the studies you see in the past, they are more related on the physiological side. So do you have any negative effect to your metabolism if you have to ride a shorter crank, for example? There are some biomechanics studies about, uh, I would say, leg extension and how your pedaling might uh, might uh, change when you go to a shorter crank. But now what we are doing is trying to um, to link pelvis stability to shorter crank. And this is something where I see quite a correlation, not just in that study from my colleague, but also in our daily work. And when you look from that side, it's even more understandable that your pelvis is more free to move when you don't close the hip angle to the maximum. Right. Well, that's a, I think that's a very comprehensive answer. Thank you. Um, with uh, the little bit of time we have left, because we do try to keep these shows to not much longer than uh, than an hour, and I, I also want to ask you after uh, about uh, the services and where they're available and where people can learn more. But uh, I do want to at least touch on the saddles that uh, uh, Jebiomized makes and distributes, uh, because I think it's a really important product. And then perhaps we can uh, we can do a follow up episode to talk about them in more depth. But uh, if you can just take us a little bit through the process of designing the saddles that you offer and then um, some of the benefits that you see from folks using them. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. So um, when we started our pressure mapping project, as I said, in 2001, we already started thinking about how to make custom saddles. So how to transfer a pressure plot into a design of a saddle. So to make the surface of the saddle really individual, that it fits to the anatomy of this specific rider. And over time, we've done, I don't know, 10,000 or 12,000 custom saddles, but we have seen way more pressure plots over the years. And um, <clears throat> two years ago, no, it was already three years ago, yeah, we got the, the opportunity to design our own saddle line, not just custom saddles, but also uh, an off-the-shelf series. And this is a little bit like... Yeah, the dream for a biomechanist working in cycling that somebody tells you, okay, when you have the chance to make your own saddles, your designs, what's your way? And as we normally do, we took a quite scientific approach. So we analyzed our database and we took about 50,000 pressure plots and analyzed them in a, in a gross way to look for pattern. So to, to define, okay, can we find some categories, some groups, some some riders that we put together. And um, at the end, this was our birth of, the, of our saddle concept. And um, we basically have two different shapes. So we have a, a shape that we call V-shape, like the letter V, because when you look uh, from the top, you see that the saddle is shaped more like a V. So you have a wider midsection. Um, and then we have got the opposite, which is called a T. And the T has got a, a more narrow width, uh, width uh, midsection and also a, a longer nose. And why do we do that? Because um, we're looking from a contact standpoint. And uh, contact area means for some riders, we have to add contact area to the midsection because they are pubic ramae. So the, the mid part of the pelvis, they need some more support and especially support for both sides of the pelvis. And for some other riders, it's more important to have better leg clearance, that they don't have any contact with their inner thigh, that they really can ride free. So for these riders, we need a T-shape. 
And this is, um, we, we have this in, in eight different models. So T and V, it's just the general idea, but then we um, define it a little bit more concrete into different shapes. Um, but this was our, our basic principle. And coming from the dynamic contact area, um, it, it was for us quite clear that we especially need the V-shaped saddle because this is something that you don't see quite often on the market. But it's really important for the market. It's that typical male cyclist with limited pelvis flexibility sits in the middle of the saddle because he's riding quite an aggressive position. If you have that rider in mind, you often see main contact on the saddle in the mid part. And if the, the saddle is too, too narrow in that area, you often see in our pressure plot that it's quite asymmetric loading. So just one side because one pubic rami is basically in the air and not touching the saddle. And that's why we developed that concept because for these riders, it really makes a big difference if they get support to both sides of the pelvis. And after having these, this is our series of road, gravel and MTB saddles. And last year we were uh, able to introduce our new tri-saddle. And with tri-saddles, it's, it's a completely different story because you have an arrow position and what you need is the perfect, <laughs> the largest contact area possible in the front part and the largest leg clearance possible in the front part, which sounds yeah. difficult. But <laughs> that sounds have, impossible. Yeah, you, you have to find the balance and you have to find the right balance that this saddle fits for an arrow position that you really can sit in the front of the saddle with, with, with a contact area that is better than on other saddles, but also that you can sit in a more biomechanic optimized position, which is maybe six to 10 centimeter behind the saddle tip, where you get a little bit more contact area because the saddle gets wider over there. Maybe it sounds a little bit strange just to explain it. I think you have to see that model to understand what I mean. Right. And we'll we'll post some images and links to the saddles as well. But um, yeah, that sounds like quite the challenge. But I know exactly what you mean, because there's uh, um, obviously with the, the pelvis rotated forward um, in, a, in a good aero time trial triathlon position, um, the support for the pubic rami, which are also in North America, they're often called the sits bones. Um, that's the, the the common term for them. So if you've if folks have heard that term, that's what uh, Daniel is talking about. So support for those sits bones of pubic rami is really important, but also leg clearance, especially um, on on longer rides. If you've had any kind of you know in, inner thigh chafing, or I've I've had um, nerve pain personally on uh, in longer faster races. So this only happens to me really in like the seventy point three distance, where I'm pushing you know reasonable power for me. And, uh, and the event is still, the bike is still fairly long. I do get, with the wider saddles, I get um, nerve pain on the, kind of right at the medial side of the thigh where that, uh, where that pressure is being made. So um, I fully appreciate the need for something like this. I'm just uh, interested in how it's, it's done, how that uh, problem is solved. Yeah, we, we had the, the advantage that we really had a lot of, lot of data files to look at. And for example, because of our project in the triathlon world, we were basically able to measure the best, the top 10 of Kona in the last years. And this is also helpful when you have so many pro data because they are really, or a lot of them caring about an arrow position. So they sit quite aggressive on the saddle. So you have that group to cover, but we were also able to take a lot of our numbers from the age groupers and also see how a typical age grouper can sit and how they how they differentiate between one and the other. 
and um, yeah, this was this was our main challenge to find a saddle that offers uh, leg clearance and contact area. And for example, what we did is <clears throat> we have a cutout in the middle or in the front part of the saddle as well. And uh, next to the cutout, we have got two bridges where you can put your body weight on. And these bridges are completely flat. Huh. And when you look at other, other saddles, for example, you see that they are normally rounded. But when you round the surface on top, you lose contact area. So we make ours flat. And we also changed the angle the, that it's different to, to other saddles. So quite small things, but from our perspective, important things. And one, one saddle that I always measured in a, in, a, in a negative way is a shape with a triangle so that it's quite narrow in the front, but then that it gets wide quite fast, maybe just five centimeters or six centimeters behind the tip, that it gets wider and wider and wider. And with that kind of saddle, I often see that triathletes are getting pushed to the front of the saddle. And then this, this saddle shift, this losing contact to the saddle, um, getting, getting over the saddle tip, and then you have to reposition yourself on the saddle again. I see that more often with this triangle shape. So for us, it was quite clear that our nose has to be shaped in a different way. So the, the knowledge, because we have measured so many different saddles, was quite helpful in developing our own tri-saddle. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, so if uh, people wanted to get their hands on uh, on a saddle or to have a fit done um, using your system, Daniel, and who, who don't live in, in Munster in Germany, um, for our, we have listeners, most of our listeners are, are in the United States. Um, many are obviously in Canada since we're, Andrew and I are based in Canada ourselves. I think there's only one Canadian um, vendor that offers the service. And I think they're in Andrew's backyard. Yes, that's right. I actually got to try out one of the saddles at my fit there. Yeah, we're we're still rolling it out. So we started last October with the tri saddle, for example, and then we had the lucky situation that Anna Hauk won Hawaii Ironman Hawaii on our stride saddle, also on our new tri saddle that really pushed the saddle into the market here in Europe. Yeah, um, and now we are getting more and more um, bike fitters using our saddle. But it's still growing. So the saddle is distributed over another brand, which is called the Secret Saddle Club. Okay. And when you look on secretsaddle.com, you find all of our dealers that uh, are using the saddle. And uh, yeah, I think we just have one or two in, in Canada at the moment. But hopefully we find some more bike fitters that believe in a, in a biomechanical driven uh, tri project and that are interested in, in stocking the saddles. Yeah, I wish that uh, I was uh, I was more in the game. But when I had when I had my cycling studio, I was doing a lot more fits than I do now. Now I just do them really for my friends or for people I coach. But um, we'll definitely share that link to the Secret Saddle Club and uh, anyone who's interested in trying a saddle. I know I will be because I've got a pretty pretty ambitious race on the roster myself this year, and which will have me spending a lot of time in the saddle. So I need something that's that's working better than my. Uh, my current ism which is you know getting really uncomfortable after only two hours okay yeah so one thing to keep in mind if you are interested in a saddle we're offering our tri saddle in two different densities okay because this was also one result out of our studies that different triathletes have a different pressure threshold and for some of them they really like a soft version and some others they really like a little bit harder saddle which doesn't move so much so because there are these two groups we decided to offer the saddle in two different densities and this is always worth to talk with one of our bike fitters to 
to find the best density for you. And normally they test both densities and then, yeah, you get the, you, you get the, the right recommendation for your density. It's a little bit uh, underrated, this topic of density with tri-saddles, but we think that it's quite an important topic. So we, we normally analyze density of tri-saddles in every uh, single triathlon fitting to really make also to find out when a saddle gets worn out, when it's important to replace them. Because sometimes you see that riders are using a saddle three or four years and it maybe starts with 50 shore and now it's just 25 shore. So you basically sit a few millimeters lower because the saddle is so soft in terms to your old position. Huh, that's a, that's a very good point. In your testing, do you find that, that the masses prefer one versus the other? Because in my position, I'm not, uh, I don't think a trip to Calgary is in the cards for me anytime soon to visit Andrew and, and the uh, your shop out there. So if you were to make a blind recommendation, which one do most triathletes favor, the softer or the firmer? Yeah, there there is a lead of the soft version against the neutral version. Got it. It's not it's not like eighty twenty, but I think uh, it's a little bit more the the soft version that triad leads prefer. Got it. And with time trial lists and track riders, then we have a little bit more preference to the neutral version. Understood. And I personally tried the neutral version, and I found that just a touch too hard for me. Um, but my focus is more long distance try, so that kind of fits with being on there for five hours. You don't want to be sitting on a rock. What do you think about the overall shape? I thought the shape was fantastic. And honestly, I would have, um, unfortunately, they only had the neutral uh, firmness. So I wasn't able to try the other one, but I probably would have picked it up if it weren't for the, just the availability at that time. But I think um, they did say they were getting some in. Uh, and for anyone listening, this is uh, Intrinsy Bike Fitters in Calgary who who helped me out with the fit. So they've got the GBMI system as well as some of the saddles. And we'll link to them as well because they're as they're you know as the Canadian um, service rep. Um, Daniel, I want to really thank you for for coming on for the the second time to talk to us about this, and uh, I learned a ton. And uh, you know as as in depth as this conversation was, I think we didn't uh, we didn't shy away from the the, the really nitty gritty details, which I always appreciate. And I think some of our listenership, I think that's the audience that we've built up. That's what they're here for. And uh, I'm uh, I'm really I'm really excited to put this one out. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And if it was too nerdy and there are questions coming up, just let me know. And I'm happy to follow up and explain a little bit more if some things are not super clear for everybody. Thank you. Andrew, anything that you want to talk about? Any announcements on your side or the 4i side? No, uh, nothing really on our side lately. Um, it's been pretty quiet over here. Very cold in Calgary. Oh, yeah. Uh, Daniel, anything that you want to you wanna tell our listeners uh, other than the links that we're going to post to Secret Saddle, to GBMIs, then to Intrinsy in Calgary? Uh, no, not from our side. So we're, um, we're trying to, to um, bring our our fit philosophy more and more to bike fitters worldwide. So um, it's always worth to keep an eye on our website as well. If we have some new dealers, some new partners, we will announce them over there. And um, yeah, we already have a f uh, some fitters in the US. So um, if there are listeners from the US as well, it, it might be worth to check out and to see who is using our pressure mapping system. 
Right. Uh, we'll uh, we'll find a link on your website to that and put it up in the show notes. And on my end, I've uh, recently started working with uh, Ragnar Canada, which is a uh, racing series that has um, multiple athletes participating to cover a long distance, so a sort of relay. So if you any of you folks, especially in Ontario, which is where the Canadian races are, there's a, a trail version and a road version. And if any of you are interested in participating or have any questions, do reach out and send me a note. And with that, I will say thank you very much for listening. And uh, as always, uh, tell your friends. That's how we grow. And uh, give us a rating or a review or and a review on uh, iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And thanks again, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.